There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm joined in the studio by Edward Carr, our Deputy Editor. Our guest for this programme is Neil Ferguson, Professor of History at Harvard University and Senior Research Fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Neil is author of a new book, Kissinger, 1923 to 1968, The Idealist. So, Neil, The Economist asks, why is Henry Kissinger, of all people, an idealist? Most people think of Kissinger as the arch-realist. Realism in the sense of doing whatever it takes to advance the national interest, amoral, immoral, illegal, inhumane. Writing the first half of Kissinger's life down to the moment at which he's offered the national security advisor job by Richard Nixon, I was very struck by how little this description matched the man I was getting to know in the archives. He comes across as an idealist in at least three ways. Uh, He's critical of the policy of appeasement, which I guess he grew up under, as being supposedly tough realism that went horribly wrong. He immerses himself in idealism, studying Kant at Harvard. And then he's an anti-materialist who rejects not only Marxism-Leninism, but all the capitalist theories of economic determinism that were doing the rounds. So he's an idealist on at least three counts. I've promised everyone I'm not going to dwell on Kant for for too long. A a terrible risk. But give me a sense of what that Kantian idealism might mean. Is it simply that you understand that there has to be authority in the state and in world affairs and that morality can't exist outside it? Or is it some other relationship with German thought? I wouldn't say that. Kissinger's reading in The Meaning of History, which is this enormously long undergraduate senior thesis he wrote, is that there's a tension in Kant's thought between the idea that the ultimate destination of human history is perpetual peace and the experience of freedom that Kissinger sees as being the more important idea at the heart of Kant's philosophy, that this is something that that is real to us. We, We experience freedom when we make choices. And Kissinger's argument is that's not an illusion, even if there is some ultimate destination at the point of decision in our minds, we are free. And in that sense, uh, Kissinger translates this very explicitly into a political context. The Cold War is not a struggle in his mind between two rival economic systems, one of which will turn out to be more productive than the other. He says in the senior thesis, we should reject totalitarianism even if it is the more economically efficient system because this idea of freedom is the more important. It's the higher thing. Edward Carr, you've reviewed the book and looked at that tussle in Henry Kissinger's thinking. Did it convince you that idealist is, however counterintuitively, the right tag to apply to him? When I looked at at how um, Kissinger spoke about those sorts of ideals, and then actually later on in, in his last book on World Order, wrote about the ideals that are embodied in American political culture, 
it came across to me as someone who who saw them as tools to deploy. They're, they're things that are created in the political culture in which he was living. And he was aware that to counter Soviet power, you needed to sell an idealism. It wasn't enough just to sell, as, as Neil was saying, prosperity. So I, I, I find myself wondering whether Kissinger used these tools as a means of, of getting power and of, of exercising his power in the world, rather than being a committed idealist who put them before everything else. We sometimes think of idealists in a more popular sense as being guitar-strumming, head-in-the-clouds utopians. Well, clearly Kissinger's not that kind of an idealist. But I don't see in him the power-grabbing, ambitious, conniving uh, Kissinger that people have subsequently projected back onto his early life. I mean, he may well have become those things once he entered the realm of power. When he's thinking about Cold War issues, which is what Rockefeller asks him to advise on, he tends to take the idealist side. Let, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, briefly, Kissinger was in the Kennedy administration. He was a minor player. The big issues of the Kennedy administration's foreign policy were the Berlin crisis, 61, and then Cuba the following year. On both occasions, Kissinger concluded that Kennedy had done a grubby deal with the Soviets. Uh, he would not have uh, been as acquiescent in the building of the Berlin Wall had he had a powerful role in the administration. And he wouldn't have done the missile swap that, that ended the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I, I see not only in theory but in practice the young Kissinger as idealist almost in the sense of Woodrow Wilson almost putting uh, issues like self-determination over the narrow national interest. You dwelt on his young life and the development of his thinking quite a long time at the beginning of the book. Did you have any doubts about that and whether you should sort of crack on with it to the point where he starts to become the power mensch? Or did you feel that was so important in the way that we understand or don't understand Henry Kissinger? Well, this first of two volumes covers the first half of his life pretty much exactly in chronological terms. I felt that previous writers had neglected or got positively wrong his early life. Uh, one key issue is what's the formative experience? I, I don't think it's being in his early teens under Hitler, uh, and he's always denied that. He makes the point that he was he, well, he's a teenager. He leaves at 15. His big interest was football. Uh, he wasn't at all political. You only get the first glimmers of political engagement at that stage. What really shaped him was the war. And I think the fact that Kissinger was a soldier, uh, saw action at the Battle of the Bulge, came under... Uh, very lethal German shellfire, would probably have been shot if he'd been taken prisoner, and then goes into counterintelligence. These are pretty important parts of the story. Uh, think of uh, what he subsequently says when he goes to Vietnam in 1965 and realises things are going horribly wrong. He says, what's become of the American army? It's degenerated. He'd also, by the way, spent time in, in Korea. So he knew war uh, and he'd seen it at, at the sharp end. And the other key event, which I think must have had a formative experience, was witnessing the liberation of a concentration camp, Arlem, just outside Hanover. The, the short essay he wrote about that experience, which he gave the title The Eternal Jew, is one of the most extraordinary documents that I quote in the book. And for a man who lost his religious faith in the war at some point, broke with his deeply orthodox Jewish father over the issue, the experience nevertheless of witnessing the Holocaust, seeing what totalitarianism was capable of, discovering not long after that 13 at least of his family uh, members had died too, including his grandmother, 
that cannot fail to have shaped his outlook. And I think there's a pretty seamless transition from Kissinger the soldier, counterintelligence uh, officer, anti-Nazi, Nazi hunter, which is essentially what he was after he transitioned to the counterintelligence corps, to Kissinger the cold warrior. There's even a moment when he encounters the Red Army uh, at the River Elbe at the end of the war. He sees for the first time there's another totalitarian state and it's not going to be our ally for much longer. That period, particularly leading up to 1968, when he starts to to come into his own, Ed, it's quite surprising in a way that he he sort of doesn't move towards Nixon earlier. And as Neil has mentioned, he sticks with with Rockefeller. You could say it's part of the idealism or even a, a naivety. But in that 1960, the Berlin Wall has gone up, the Cuba crisis has happened. What did you make of the account of his thinking at that time and how he sort of shifts to becoming the, the famous Henry Kissinger, if you like? Well, one of the things that, that comes across is, is a, a slightly European attitude to powerful people. I mean, he, in other words, I think he admires Rockefeller's wealth and, and aristocratic noblesse oblige. And he thinks that, that Rockefeller can do things uh, as an accomplished and, and wealthy man. Is it always clear to Kissinger himself which side he's on in terms of party allegiance? You mentioned that he has a minor role in the Kennedy administration. And although he's critical of, of Kennedy's handling of the Bay of Pigs, he kind of goes along in the end with the view, well, you know what, we're all still here and it could have ended differently. So he's at the same time thought of as being more of a figure on the right, a defining role in conservative America, which is he? Well, he certainly thought of himself as a conservative at Harvard compared with liberal contemporaries like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the historian who was a friend. But when he meets real conservatives, for example, at the 1964 Republican National Convention, he's absolutely appalled. The Goldwaterites, the supporters of Barry Goldwater, who boo and jeer Rockefeller when he tries to speak at the convention, appall Kissinger to the extent that he compares them with fascists. I think the interesting thing about Kissinger is that although he sees himself as a conservative, going back to something Edward just said, he sees himself as a European conservative. In the American context, he's much more bipartisan. And it's almost happenstance that he ends up in Nixon's administration. That's a complete surprise when it happens because Kissinger doesn't expect anything like that. When he's first offered the job by Nixon, he doesn't realise he's being offered the job. But are they, Edward, also united in the end by the fact that although it has to be subliminal in the way that Americans are conducting foreign policy, but we discover from Neil's book that Nixon's doubts about Vietnam seem to go back perhaps further than a lot of other accounts have reflected. What did you make of that? Well, I, th- I thought that the, the it was tantalising the glimpse you got of these two men beginning to dance around each other right at the end of the book. And... You know, I, I'm for one can't wait to see how they how they get on in the second volume, knowing particularly how their relationships being characterised by by other writers, a strange mixture of sycophancy and resentment on on Kissinger's part, and and sort of, of you know the the usual paranoia uh, from from Nixon, and, and to see kind of how these two characters I- evolve, especially now that we have this picture of Kissinger as an intellectual, as a man of ideas um, who wants to get things done and, and sort of who believes that you live off this capital that you've amassed when you're actually in, in office. 
the convergence of, of Kissinger and Nixon is a fascinating thing. It's an intellectual convergence. Uh, as I said, Kissinger's uh, avoiding Nixon, badmouths him, says he's unfit to be president, but Nixon is reading Kissinger. So when they meet uh, in late 1967, unusually, it's Nixon who's able to break the social ice by saying how much he had enjoyed Kissinger's earlier book, Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. But one of the striking things about this convergence is the role that Vietnam plays in it. Kissinger realizes very early on that Vietnam's a disaster. He goes there in 1965, and as I mentioned earlier, he's dismayed by what he sees. He's also dismayed by the the Saigon government's corruption. And he concludes pretty quickly there's going to have to be a diplomatic way out of this. The puzzle is how. How do you get the United States out of this amazing mess that Lyndon Johnson's administration has created? And this is the point, I think, at which Kissinger begins to temper his own idealism through a rather strange historical refraction. It's thinking about Bismarck that gets him closer, I think, to strategic realism. It's asking the question, okay, Bismarck was no idealist. In fact, there's something very problematic about his rather amoral approach to statecraft. But you know what? Wasn't he doing something right in the way that he conducted European policy? You're thinking of the, balance of power the, politics. Exactly. And, and I think this idea of, uh, of, of equilibrium, but also of, of strategic ingenuity, comes out of the unfinished, unpublished Bismarck book and is really a cue to bring Nixon and Kissinger together on this problem. But you also say, Neil, that... that um, originally, Kissinger's project was to write three books uh, about starting starting from the, the Treaty of Vienna and going on through, through to the uh, catastrophe of the First World War and about how this balance of power politics was ultimately doomed for one reason or another. So when Kissinger begins to embrace this, is he doing it in the knowledge that it can't work in the long run? He has this essay on Bismarck, which is, is ultimately critical. This is the part of the book that he publishes, saying there's something unsustainable about this tour de force that relies on Bismarck's genius, but is essentially a sort of Darwinian, morally unhooked strategy. I think this this is a, a kind of anticipation of the problems that Nixon and Kissinger are going to have extricating the United States from Vietnam, because what they have to do is elaborate strategic gymnastics, the opening to China, the pressure that that puts in the Soviets, all ultimately designed to extricate the US uh, from its mess in Vietnam. So it's strategic ingenuity, uh, which Kissinger hopes to reconcile with his youthful idealism, hopes. But there are some people who will be going into this, and they won't all be on the far left, just saying, you know, this man has blood on his hands. When you're going, particularly from where you are now, into your research and writing of the second volume, how much is that in your mind? There is a case to answer here. To an extent, your subject is still in the dock. The critical issue, it seems to me, is to make sure that we have a single standard, not a double standard, for judging US administrations during the Cold War and indeed after the Cold War, uh, when, for example, people uh, exercise themselves about the US uh, administration's involvement in Chile at the time that the Allende government was overthrown and Pinochet's military dictatorship established, they need to remind themselves before they pick up their dusty copy of Christopher Hitchens and start crying war crime that something very similar has just happened in Egypt. Uh, a country which is uh, a military dictatorship. Previously, the democratic leader uh, was arrested, has just been sentenced to death, and US military aid to Egypt was restored earlier this year. So my objective in the second volume 
It's clearly not uh, to paint with whitewash. I haven't done that in the first volume and I won't in the second. But I do think we need to have a single standard for assessing these sorts of questions. Kissinger says, in foreign policy, most choices are between evils. You don't get nice touchy-feely options. And that's important to remember. We're in a world now where we're seeing a resurgent Russia and the Ukraine crisis, indeed Crimea, that's gone along with that, and also Syria in a multi-sided mess that the world seems unable to do much about. Do you think that Henry Kissinger might have some solutions or perhaps some pointers that would help us with that? We have reasonably good answers to that question because he's written a lot on these subjects. I'll I'll give you a very short answer. It is hard to imagine uh, Henry Kissinger allowing the Russian president to become the power broker uh, of a Middle Eastern crisis. I mean, almost rule number one. Uh, of Cold War strategy was make sure the Russians don't get into that position. And that was one of uh, Nixon and Kissinger's early successes, really marginalizing the Soviets in the Middle Eastern crisis of the early 1970s. So what we're seeing at the moment play out in the Middle East and perhaps also to an extent in Eastern Europe is, is, is a fail by the standards of Henry Kissinger. Neil Ferguson, Edward Carr, thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks. In London, this is The Economist. Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.